Wisdom instruction for crown princes by the king of Israel in Proverbs 3 sounds like this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. This is wisdom to receive the relationship that God is offering, to, to be wise in this life under, the, under this administration of our creator is to have the skill to live your life in a way that pleases God because he's there, because he cares about your choices. And that's why wisdom and righteousness always go hand in hand. The wisdom of God lived out in our lives will always involve the righteousness of God. And that has been applied to you as believers in Jesus. When you first trusted in Christ, you were declared righteous by the grace of God. This is called justification. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is setting you apart to himself by making you more and more conformed to the character of his son in righteousness. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And righteousness should be on our minds and our hearts. It should be uh, conforming and calibrating our consciences. And the alternative to righteousness is the biggest three-letter word in the world, S-I-N. It's a little word that has heavy consequences and personal sin in the life of the believer is a factor that will mystify many. What do we do about it? For some, their solution is to pretend like it is not a problem. I don't have any sin. I don't sin. I'm good to go. And this in 1 John chapter 1 is a lie and it's a problem. I haven't sinned when I have is to hide from the truth. And if you believe a lie that you tell yourself, I think you run the risk of becoming dissociated from reality. And it's one of the greatest horrors one can imagine is losing connection to reality. The solution, though, is not to run from the truth. It's to tell the truth. And in 1 John chapter 1, we're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the solution in your life to personal sin. I know it's for you as a believer because John goes on to say, I tell you these things, little children, so that you not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not those of our sins only, but those of the whole world. He died for the sins of the world, and that work on the cross is the basis for our position and our experience, our ongoing walk by the Spirit and fellowship. I always give you a moment for silent prayer to re-engage your spiritual life if you need to, to deal with the problem of sin, uh, that the choices you might have made to contradict the righteousness of God, and, um, and to regain that prayer ground of fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and praise you for bringing us together, for the opportunity to meditate on the, the scriptures tonight, to study them, to dig down deep, and yet to apply them very simply, right at our fingertips. Help us learn tonight to study, to concentrate, to focus, but to bring these things to our memory when we need them as we trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn please, please to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30, we're, we're on the 72nd visit in this quick thumbnail sketch of, of Isaiah. <clears throat> and this chunk of Isaiah we're calling the Lord of History section, Isaiah chapters 28 through, um, the, the section is 35, but the six woes go through chapter 33. 
And Isaiah is very challenging scripture to read. When you read it, you'll probably think, there's a lot going on here. I probably need to dig down when you just casually read through. And most people never get to that point. But we are very fortunate, very blessed by God tonight because we can dig down a little bit and see what's happening uh, as Isaiah has given us this treasure trove of reflection on who God is and what he expects. The historical circumstances I've told you many times. There's what's called the Assyrian crisis. The largest empire in the, Medi- in the Middle Eastern world is attacking uh, the, the, the people in Israel. The northern and southern kingdoms are under constant threat of destruction and assimilation, absorption into the pagan Assyrian nation. And they're the baddest, they're biggest, they're most dangerous. And um, the reason this is happening, Isaiah has told us again and again, is because the people in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel are into idolatry. They're rebelling against God. To understand what Isaiah is talking about, uh, you have to know this, that the problem is a geopolitical threat, an existential threat from a, a, a larger nation that very easily will roll over them. And the reason they're under this threat is because God is bringing military discipline. He's bringing the Assyrians. And the Assyrians do not think they're serving Yahweh. They don't believe that they're working for Yahweh. They're just doing what they want to do. But God is so arranging history. And that's the reason this is about the Lord of history. So, so the problem in, in Judea is not that the Assyrians are coming. The problem is that God is bringing them. And so what they should do if they want to defuse the bomb, if they want to cut the green wire or the red wire, whichever one you're supposed to cut, right before the bomb goes off, they should go right to God and repent, return to him and pursue him and seek after him whom they've rejected. And that is the message of the six woes here in general. Chapter 28, as we saw, deals with the northern kingdom of Ephraim, as they summarize the largest tribe called Ephraim, but the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And then... Focusing on Judah in chapter 29, the first half. And then the second piece of chapter 29 focuses on the fact that they're, they're rejecting God's solution and embracing a human solution. And the great summary principle is that God's solutions are the only solutions. Man's solutions are no solution. And that is so evident in the way the poetry works in chapter 29. The fourth woe is to the rebellious children where we find ourselves tonight in chapter 30 who are going to, to go solve, solve their problem of the Assyrian threat by making coalitions with other countries. Isaiah dealt with this before with the uh, Syro-Ephraimite war and, uh, in, uh, in earlier chapters and he ministered something like 60 to 65 years um, as a prophet in Israel. So this is the latest thing. And so I just want to help you think about what it'd be like to have Isaiah <clears throat> in your day. You have the news. You have the things that people say are what we know. And there's always a problem with the news because it's somebody's take on what's important. But it's never God's take unless God tells you this is the stuff that's important. Man thinks that the big kingdoms of the earth are the important thing, and what God thinks is this little backwater crossroads between all the, all the nations, Israel, that's the, that's the key, that's his focus. And so w- when you have the news, it's, a, it's kind of a faulty read. It's always going to be a mess. And into that cacophony of voices of, let's go join the Assyrians, that, there's the Assyrian campaign a group that politically in Judah wanted to go join Assyria. Let's just go be part of Assyria. Then you had the people that want to join Egypt and let's fight against Assyria with the superpower to our south and we'll make us, we'll plus them up a little bit and then we'll go fight Assyria or we'll kick them out. And there's all this noise and political things. And so people are not talking to each other over Thanksgiving dinner because you've got the Assyrian people and the, and the Egyptian people, right? You've got, you've got disc, discord and, 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 and nobody knows what to choose except everybody knows for sure what to choose. But the only people that really know are the people listening to God's word. And in their day, it is as though there's a newscaster in some sort of robe because that's what they wore. And he looks like everybody else, but he's a little bit different than everyone else because, because when he speaks, he's saying exactly words that God gave him to say. He's a prophet, and that's what Isaiah is. It's like someone puts a mic, hands in a mic, and turns on the camera and says, what, what do you think, Isaiah? And he says, thus saith the Lord. You're in trouble for going down to Egypt. 
And God is going to discipline you more for that when he was already bringing discipline with you through, through the Assyrians because of your idolatry. That's what's happening. And what's beautiful, and they missed it, they completely missed it. Isaiah 6 tells us they wouldn't listen to him. They would know exactly what's going on. I'd love to study military history. I should say I love to read military history and learn. And so often when you look at the decisions people make on the battlefield generals, like what's, what are they thinking? Usually when they make mistakes, it's because they don't know what's going on. There's a lack of intelligence, military intelligence. I don't mean that they're not intelligent. Usually these, these generals are, <clears throat> with some tragic exceptions. But, but the, the, the generals make mistakes because they don't, know, they don't know that there's another core behind this core. They don't have the intelligence. Their cavalry got held up. Or, or in Washington's case, in 1776, no cavalry. The Congress didn't, pop, didn't spring for cavalry. So there was no way for him to know what the British were doing. Very often, a lot of his blunders, and he made a lot of blunders in 1776. He made these blunders because he, he didn't know what, what, what the enemy disposition was. Wouldn't it be amazing for the general or the president or the king or whoever to have somebody, you know, in a robe, walk up and say, go left. Trust me. How do you know? The Lord. He told us, go left. And then the king says, I trust the Lord. And he goes left and he wins. Wouldn't that be amazing to have that? All the kings of the earth want that. Watch these pagan-minded people in your day, the, the leaders. Watch how they'll surround themselves with soothsayers. They surround themselves with purported prophets that they're going to tell them the real stuff. Watch it. But see, we don't have prophets today. In, in Isaiah's day, that's what he was. And so to understand what the book of Isaiah is, you need to really understand the history. And I don't want to overplay it because we really have some exciting things I want to talk to you about tonight in the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> So we have the two failures of, of Judah, as we've seen. And tonight we're focusing on the rebellious children who have a plan, but it's not God's plan. And you don't want to be in a plan that's not God's plan. That's a, that's a bad plan. And that's what's happening. We saw it breaks down chiastically. That means that it's, it's shaped like half of an X or a key, the letter key in, in Greek, and it focuses on the center. So you have the contemporary events on the outside and the work of God in coming human, human events incoming divine events on the inside. So what man is going to do in chapter um, 30, verses 8 through 17 here, um, and what God is going to do in verses 18 through 26. And our, our goal here is to read chapters, chapter 30, verse 8 through 17 tonight. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to talk about. In verse 1 through 7, as we saw just by way of review, woe to stubborn sons, declares the Lord, who plans a work, who, plans a, who work a plan but not for me and pour out a libation for a covenant with a foreign country but not my spirit. They're, they're not interested in my covenant. They don't want to make an arrangement with me. They're making deals with Egypt is the point. In order to add sin upon sin, you're already in trouble with me. You're already sitting in the principal's office waiting for your spanking in the 1980s. You're already there in trouble, but you're going to make more trouble. Now you're setting a, a fire in his wastebasket. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Well, we're going to have to find something but more powerful than the principle. That's kind of the idea. Who go down to Egypt, but my mouth they do not ask. That's the literal Hebrew, and that's, what it, that's their idiom. They don't ask a word from me. What do you want us to do, Lord? They just do what they're going to do because they're functionally atheists. They're pretending like God isn't there. To take refuge in the fortress of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And it will be for you, this fortress of Pharaoh, a shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, an insult. And I put the, the words in English back in their order when I translate English from the Hebrew. So you can see he's, these Hebrew poets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Psalms and a lot of the Proverbs, the long form poems, they're making these beautiful symmetrical arrangements. And this is one of the one verse that's like that in verse three of Isaiah 30. And David Roseland doesn't see that in English. I wouldn't have seen that like I see it in Hebrew when I put it from Hebrew back in English in the, in the Hebrew order. And your English Bibles, they're great and they're good translations. And I, I don't quibble with that, but you can't really see it. And to put this into some sort of static Bible translation, I, I believe would be um, probably less helpful than seeing it in person, of course, like this. But the fortress of Pharaoh rhymes with the shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That's, that's a rhyme. In Hebrew, the, the, the thoughts rhyme in Hebrew poetry. And he says a shame and an insult, and that rhymes. And so the, those of you who haven't done a lot of Hebrew poetry reading in, the, in like a third or more of the Old Testament is poetry, maybe half of it, they say the same thing twice all the time. But how they say it 
and, and the arrangement of it, there's an art to it. And, and Isaiah is called the Prince of Prophets because of the beautiful poetry and how he arranged things. Also because he's so, so very messianic. So much of our Christology, our understanding of Jesus, comes out of the book of Isaiah. For they will be in Zoan, and his princes and his messengers and Hanesh will arrive, or Hanes will arrive. And remember we said that's the northern part of uh, Egypt to the southern part. So it's like they're just in Egypt, you know, all over Egypt, they're in there. And his princes, his messengers are uh, uh, apparently Judah's, the, the king of Judah. And then he says, the whole nation in verse five will be ashamed because of the of people who do not profit, who are not a help, are not for profit, who are not for help and not for benefit, for profit or benefit to them. So they're gonna go after this thing that they think will solve their problem, but it won't help. And this is what we do. And there's an application in all of this to us. Well, this isn't working what I'm doing, so let's try this. I'll push this button and see if this goes. Well, before you push that button, why don't you look it up in the manual, see if it says anything in here about that button. Well, I don't like this situation I'm in, this covenanted marriage. I'm gonna break this down and see if this other thing works. Push that button. There's, there's a word, there's a clear word in here about that kind of choice. Don't do it. Don't do it because God has a plan for you and his plan is for your good. He tells you that's not part of the plan. And so there's always a word and, and that's what's happening. As we'll see, they're rejecting God's word, but it's, it's very hard to be sitting in the middle of the map and see where you are. We are zoomed out watching this from the, the benefit of hindsight and all this distance and time and looking at it academically. They're living in the map. We're looking at the map flying over it. They're living in it. And they couldn't see when God's word came. What a horror for them. The horror that is comparative to, compar comparable to that in our time, I believe, is the ready, easy access to the word of God in our language in so many clear ways. So many, all these many translations, paraphrases, helps, and nobody's paying attention. God's word is, is just, everybody's got the mute button on. But if you unmute, it's screaming, and it's there, and it's available, and it's never been more accessible, and we've never been more derelict to, about it. <clears throat> the whole nation will be ashamed on the outside, and this benefit that's not a benefit is for shame. On the outside, you see the, the beginning and end. On the inside is that these people are not helpful, that, that he says it twice, that the Egyptians will not be helpful to you, but you'll be shamed. I wonder if they're going to get it if he says it twice or 16 times. And so we keep translating. In verse 6, an oracle of the behemoth of the Negev. Behemoth can also mean living animals, the living creatures of the Negev. And the, an oracle means uh, a message from God. It's a, it's a prophetic message. And it's this word here, Masah. And a lot, of your, um, a lot of your Hebrew prophecies will start this way. The oracle that, uh, that um, um, Habakkuk the prophet saw or Isaiah saw. Messiah. It's the word oracle or the burden. It's like what this is, is um, God has the message and he's completely responsible for that message. And he's got a pack mule with a little saddlebag and he rolls up that message and puts it in the saddlebag and slaps that pack mule on the on hindquarters and he brings it in and they pull it out and they read it. And that's the message. That's the oracle, the burden that God has given Isaiah. So he's not the author of this uh, Primary, he's, he's not the ultimate author of this, but he is the human author. An oracle, that's a burden from God of the behemoth or the animals of the Negev. Through the land of distress and anguish, lioness and lion from there, serpent and flying seraph, uh, probably, flying, uh, pro probably darting snake. They bear upon shoulders of male donkeys riches and upon humps of camels their treasures. That's one of my favorite verses. And upon a people who do not profit. Again, the, the, the summary of the Egyptians is there's no good to you going down there. It's a waste of your time. It's an empty, um, it's an empty treasure chest. It's a, it's, a, it's a dead end. But they're going to try and they're going to take all this money and tribute to go to try to pay off the Egyptians to fight Assyria with them. Like, we'll pay you tribute and be your subjects. We'll be your vassals if you'll fight off the Assyrians. And uh, apparently the reason for the description of the animals is because that's the route they're taking through the Negev to get down to Egypt, and that's not the way to go. And Egypt, in vanity and emptiness, they will help. So it will be no help. It'll, they'll, they'll, Ezra, they'll help you, but it won't be help. Therefore, I've called this one Rahav, who has been silenced or made to cease. Rahav, the great, mighty sea monster of legend that is just stopped. So this great help that Egypt should be all this power, it's not going to be helpful. 
So you could be afraid of the great sea monster, but God's saying it doesn't have any, any claws. And so now we get into verse 8 through 17, where it's that section of the offer of God's word and the rejection of God's word by the people. Now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. Who says that? This is God's instructions through Isaiah for I'm telling you the word, so learn from it. Now this happened something like 2,600 and something years ago. And the people that were the initial generation that received this ignored it. But we won't. And if we don't, if we listen to God's message for them, we'll learn who he is and what he wants from us. Because that's how God's word works. We get to know our God and the personal relationship that this feeds. We know exactly how to live. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers or the prophets, you must not see visions. What, what does this mean? The people that are saying, I've got a word of God from you because he's made me a prophet. We don't want to hear your prophecies. That's what they're saying. The, the word of God is open. And they're saying, listen to this. They're like, close that. We don't want to hear that. That's what's happening in Judah. They say to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Rather, speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Now, the people aren't actually saying this, but what they're asking for is this. Tell us what we want to hear. Well, what you want to hear isn't the truth, but we'll take it. We want some poison, please. That's what they're begging for. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's what is the, the attitude of the people in Judah. Sounds familiar. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you've rejected this word and put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge and a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. So imagine the... I guess this is a, something they had seen. We haven't seen it yet. Don't lean too much on that wall over there. The, um, the, the idea of imminent collapse, because gravity takes its course. You've got this high wall, and it's been destabilized. And as soon as it's destabilized enough, it comes crashing down really fast. And that's the idea. It's, it, it's, it's catastrophe uh, quickly. Come suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. Okay, so the, the shattering that we're looking at is so big that it's like you drop a pot and there's enough of a pot shard, like a pretty good sized pot or jar. You've got enough of it left that you could at least grab by the bottom of it and like use it like a cup and scoop some ash out. But there's not going to be enough left all the pottery is going to be smashed so, so devastatingly that you can't use it for anything. It's just little bitty fragments. That's the idea. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, said, In repentance and rest you'll be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you will flee, God says. And we'll ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you will be swift, is God's answer. We'll see that in colors in a minute. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and is a signal on a hill. So what rings through in this little section, this little stanza of poetry, what rings through is God is offering you saying, come get it, I will feed you. Come hear what I have to say, you'll benefit from it. And they won't hear it. And it's, it's complicated but it's also pretty profound in its simplicity. Now go in, write it on a tablet and upon them, and upon, with them and upon a scroll inscribe it for a day afterwards for a witness forever. Is literally what he says in verse eight. What you're gonna say, and we're, been, we're, we're living proof of this. God told them, hear what I'm trying to say. And you said, don't talk to us. So, so write it down so that, so that it's a witness. Now God's all about history. God is all about I'm going to do this for you forever. Now watch history if I don't do it forever. He promised the land to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their kids forever. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their kids haven't had the land forever. Abraham never got the land. Isaac never got the land. Jacob never had the land given to him. But God promised it to him and his offspring forever. So are we going to expect God to do what he said in history? I do. I expect God to do what he said in history. And that's the way the Bible works. That's Genesis 12 stuff. That's the early, the first the first book of the Bible. 
God puts himself on record, and that's what covenants are. They're, they're documents that are legally binding, that are historically verifiable. And history becomes a question of whether God will do what he said. Now, there are people called Assyrian today. They're actually a Christian group in the Middle East. But there are no Assyrians like what we're reading about. There are no Neo-Babylonians or Chaldeans. I mean, there are people that will trace their ancestry in the Arab world, but I'm just saying, like, that culture is gone. But there are still people that will read this scroll in Hebrew, unpointed Hebrew, who are uh, directly descendant from the people that first received these things. And the tragedy of the time in which we live is those people have a veil that Satan has placed over their hearts when the gospel's read, and they can't hear it. And they wouldn't hear it in Isaiah's day. And history is bearing out what God has said, but we're too lazy to listen to what God said so often is our, kind of our problem. Okay, so this is what God's word is. It's a witness for everyone to pay attention and learn from it. So this is a rebellious people, false sons. This is God's indictment of, of Judah. Sons who not, do not want to listen to the T-O-R, and then in the, in the uh, construct state, it's A-T. Torah, that's the word Torah, and it means instruction. But I put it, I, I transliterated the Torah of Adonai, of the God who says, I am that I am. They don't want to listen to his instruction. Let this never be said of you and me. Let this never be said of us that we don't want to listen to the instruction of God. I mean, I don't feel like it may be the honest truth in any given moment of your life, but never let it be said that you don't want to listen to it because you know what it is, because you know what is good for you. I don't feel like going to the gym, but I need to, and I, and I do. I don't need to uh, eat healthy. I don't need to, to sleep or want to sleep. I don't feel like going to sleep when I need to, but I need to do it. I know I want the benefit of it. This is discipline. And it does, it does take discipline to listen to God's word as you're being disciplined right now. Self-discipline. In verse 10, these people, these rebellious, stubborn children say to the seers, that's the word for seer is the, the um, people that ra'ah, that see. They say to the seers, do not see. In other words, you who get visions, prophetic visions from God to tell us, don't get prophetic visions and tell us. So, to, so the summary is to the seers, do not see. And those who see visions, a uh, synonym for seers, those who see visions based on the word chazah to see, do not see visions for us rightly. So we, when God's word is directly given to you for us from God, we don't want to hear it. That's what God is telling Judah that the, the rank and file in, in the nation are doing. Now, they don't believe it's God's word. They don't believe in Isaiah. They don't think that God has something to say to them. But God, who is speaking to them through the prophet Isaiah, he's very certainly saying this is their attitude. They're telling the people that have the word, don't give us the word. There was a man this week in the, in the news that was out advocating for a... He was out um, um, raising awareness in, in this community for a religious event for some Christian service or, or church service they're having. He was shot in the head on the street. They survived so far, I think, at last I heard. Um, not an everyday experience, but, uh, but this is what the culture that they're dealing with in Judah, what, what, what Isaiah has to face. Don't tell us what God said. Declare for us smooth things. Smooth or nice things. See visions of falsehood. You're asking us to lie to you. Turn aside from the way. Divert from the path. You're on the wrong course, Isaiah. Don't tell us the truth. Cause to cease from our faces, the Holy One of Israel. That's literally the way the Hebrew idiom works. Now, the, what that means in English is not what I've written here. In English, the idiom that I'm literally translating is better. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. But cause to cease from our faces. That's the, that's the way they talk about it. If it's in my face, I have it. It's good. If it's, I, I don't want it in my face, go away from me. That kind of thing. And, and there, that does kind of hit. Cause to cease from our faces the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. So he's heard from them. See, God offered his word, and then he heard their response, and he's given us what their response is. Now, what is God's response to them? What does God say? My turn. It's, that's beautiful in Isaiah 30. 
Since you've rejected this word and you've rested your trust upon oppression and guile and you've relied upon them, therefore this iniquity will be for you like a breach falling, like a bulge in a high wall, which suddenly in an instant its collapse comes and its collapse will be like the smashing of a jar of the potter's or the potter's jar. So totally crushed, it will not be spared and it will not be found among its fragments of potsherd to take away fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. So what I just showed you was the New American Standard is ex- almost word for word how I would translate it, even though I didn't, this isn't the New American Standard, this is my translation. For thus says Ko Amar, thus says Adonai, that's the word, not Yahweh. This is the word for Lord or master. And then he says Yahweh, Kadosh Yisrael. That's the Lord or the master, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. That's one of the great titles for God in the scriptures. Uh, If you really want to emphasize that God is speaking, you say, Adonai Yahweh Kadosh Yisrael, (laughs) the Holy One of Israel. And uh, so he's, it's like he's rearing up with all his glory to say something to these rebellious and stubborn children. What a benefit to us that we hear what God says to them. He says, in a returning or said, I should say, for thus said the master, in a returning and calm, you'll be saved. The word I'll show you in a second for that's translated repentance is this word right, uh, no, it's this word right here, shuva. And it comes from the verb shuv to return. Uh, and it, it, depending on what you mean by repentance, that's an okay translation, but it just means a returning. In a returning and calm, you'll be saved, returning to him because he's calling them, his kids, to come back to him, and they won't come home, and they won't come home. That's what he's saying. And calm, not spazzing, not, not in, uh, in terror and constant fright, but in calm. And quiet and confidence will be your strength, but you were not willing. This is what God said to them, and they didn't want it. This is the prodigal's father. You know the story of the prodigal son? I think it's, I always get this confused. I think it's Luke 15 and the three, the three parables that are the same. And the last one's the, the, the son that's gone missing. The prodigal son. The reason the father, okay, sees his son from a long way off is because he wants him to come home. And he's always looking down the road as far as he can see to see if his son's on his way home. That's what he wants. He's always looking for that boy to come home and he's not coming home until one day he sees him from a long way off and he's coming home. And what Jesus is doing in the prodigal son is telling the people in, in Israel in his day what God the Father's like. He wants his kids to come home. He's looking for them. He wants them. That's the heart of God. And that's what the book of Jonah is written to show you don't understand God. You want to, you hate the Assyrians, but God wants them to come to him. And you're supposed to be the priest nation, the missionary nation that can, uh, can make the conversation and you, and you don't care to. That's Jonah. All right. Let's look at this returning and calm and all this. The first word return is shuva. And it's the only time this word in its form happens in the Old Testament. And that's a big place. The Old Testament's a big part of the Bible. I mean, that's a lot of, of Scripture, the Old Testament. That's, that's a lot of Hebrew writing. And this word is called a hopox. It only happens one time, but it's built on this word shuv, S-U-V, or S-U-V. And then it, it, that word means to turn around or to come back or something like that. And it's really a common word. And um, boy, is it, is it a pain, and in in, it's a pain because it's got uh, this letter here and Aileen, and, and some of y'all know that. <laughs> this word is a hard one to, to spot sometimes because the second letter goes away. But the point is that the word should be translated a returning. It should be whatever shuv does, this is the noun of that, and it's a returning, a coming back. So you could call that a repentance if you know what that means. But what we do with repentance is we make it that we feel bad. We make it a, 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 a psychological word. We make it a feeling. We make it some sort of penance. The word penance is in the word repentance and its Latin roots. And so just understand it's God saying the door is open. The light is on. Dinner is ready. What are you doing? Come home. That's, that's what this is, a returning. The word nachat. Nachat. Or sorry, I keep messing that up. That's nachat. I even spelled it out for you. Nachat. It's a segalit. And it's from the verb navach. Now, does anybody know uh, the word navach from like calm or rest? Navach. How about noah? 
That's where the word Noah comes from, the name Noah, which means rest. It's from this verb, navach, to rest or to, to, to be calm. And it's translated, this noun form is translated calm or patience. And I think in context, it's better rendered patience, or calm, better rendered calm. Just be, be at peace as you rest in me, is what he's saying. You return to me, rest with me. These are the ideal words of a relationship with God that God is asking Judah to return to. Shachat. Shachat, most Hebrew words accent the second syllable or the last syllable, shachat. This one doesn't because it's the, the form is in nachat, but this is shachat. And it's the hifil, absolute, infinite absolute from, um, from a verb that means to, to stop or to cease or to keep peace, or in this case, to make, to keep peace. So we keeping peace or quiet. And, and I know it's all technical. Don't worry about these things, but I just, there's something we're going to get theologically out of this. And then this word, bicha, bicha, and this ch is the way I transliterate ch or chet, because we don't have a letter that makes you say that. So it's very similar in Greek to the key. The letter key, you might say, is chi or chai or chi. The key is pronounced usually. So Jesus Christ, is, it's in your back of your throat. But anyway, bicha is the word for faith hear trust or confidence, and it's from a very famous word, batach. This word means to be secure or to rest one's faith in, and it's kind of a picture word for someone that is finding their security in a secure person or secure uh, object of faith. And so it does mean to trust in, but it's the trust that takes refuge. It's the trust that finds security, and this word sort of anchors all of these. Now, we have we have return, a returning, and a reposing one's faith in. And in the middle, you have patience and keeping peace. I hope you can see the synonymous relationships. In the middle is to calm and keeping peace, and the outside is returning to God and trusting in Him, express, reposing your confidence. See, in the world we live in, there's always a bigger fish. And if you're one of these little fish, around this big fish, that might make you uncomfortable because you might, uh, you might get eaten. And it's, very, it's a, it's a fish-eat-fish world out there. But there are other threats too. There are other things that might uh, be a, a cause for us to be concerned. And the idea of taking refuge, the idea of hiding and reposing, they're trusting, they're putting their faith and they're reposing resting their faith in Egypt to solve their problem of the Assyrians. And God is singing to them. It's certainly in a minor key, but all over the place, he's singing to them, please come home and trust me. Trust me. It's, I've told you for a thousand years, trust me. And they won't trust him. They're afraid. They're in crisis. They're not calm. They're not at rest. And they have a good reason to be afraid. When you're afraid, like this little kid, vexed about something, what do you do? What do you do? Well, we're going to listen to what God said. He said, return to me, trust in me, we're calm. We take refuge in him. We rest our faith in him. I want to talk about the elements of a faith act tonight. It's very basic, very fundamental, but it's so helpful because this passage you put your faith in him and leave it there. That word batak, to, to repose your faith in, to rest on, that's the word in Proverbs 3 that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's batak. All right, let's talk about the elements of a faith act. When you have faith, when somebody has faith, you have the subject, the person having faith. Let's say that I'm having faith in God. You have the subject, me. And that's the person who's expressing the faith, the person in the situation. Not a self-portrait because I didn't draw it, but nevertheless, there I am, the person in the situation. Then you have the threat, the reason that you are vexed, the, the reason that little kid has got his face covered up and he's scared. The threat, the hazard of the bad guy, the villain, something that's, that's bothering me, right? And we need to have faith all the time, and sometimes we're bothered by things we don't even, we don't even know we're being bothered. We don't even know we're reacting to a threat or to a perceived loss or fear of something, and we're acting in a way that denies our faith. But this is the, the faith act. You have your threat, your hazard, your villain. That's a good threat. 
And then the third, the, third, the third thing, the third element in the faith act is the object of faith, the thing or the person that the subject is trusting in. We need the person that's, that's the object of faith there. That animated pretty good. Did you see that? So he shows up, and then the threat gets reduced. He shows up, and then the threat gets reduced. Now notice the little guy that's the subject, the one having the faith, he has no way he's going to fight this dragon. The dragon, it's got the advantage until the person that the, that's behind me, the person that I'm trusting in shows up, and then he's got it. And that's the idea. This is what a faith act is like. Now notice, I'm facing the challenge. I'm facing the thing that has me vexed. But my faith is not in myself to solve it. My faith is not, my, my, my faith is not that the dragon's going to kill me and, and overpower God. My faith is in him, the one who has my back. And this is, this is how a faith act works when you are talking about your relationship with God. It has to be that you're not focused on the problem more than you're trusting in your creator. So here's the question. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? What are the threats, the villains, the, the causes that need you, that, that have you needing to trust in God? You're afraid of dying. Everyone is. At some level, you're afraid of a loss of health, which is a loss of quality of life. And some of us are more afraid of loss of quality of life than loss of life itself. But, but if you're not struggling with fear of death, good. I'm glad you're in a strong place. There's probably a point at which you will struggle with this. There probably is a time which you'll struggle with this. You believers, you rank Christians with your absolute certainty in Christ that you have eternal life. It's still uh, different from going there. The, the, the journeys, the, the adventure, and um, there's some trepidation about it. We're afraid of losing our wealth. We are. We're afraid. This motivates a lot of decisions people make, fear of loss. I'm told that a lot of trading, a lot of the, the uh, monetary trading is done on emotional fear and greed, two, two emotions that will destroy you. And neither is, neither is a reason to make decisions, but people do. The loss of wealth is something we're afraid of, and we're, lost, we're afraid of losing relationships. We're afraid of, um, of messing things up with people um, or many relationships. A lot of people are fear, afraid of missing out. Young people are scared of this. They call it FOMO, fear of missing out. Have you heard of it? Oh boy. Well, they have this and I don't have this, so I have to have that. They're doing this, but I'm not doing this, but they're doing this, so I have to do this too. That kind of idea, the fear of missing out, it's a big problem. Fear of not being accepted goes along with it, and it's a big deal in Proverbs that your friends are going to entice you to do things, but don't walk with them. If they're fools, be wise and walk with, walk with the Lord. And that's hard to do because you'll be rejected. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm not going to be admired or, or thought well of. I'm, people aren't going to go click on my uh, posting, and they're not going to give me likes or whatever. They're just going to swipe and not pay attention to me. And we're not going to be admired. We're afraid of this. We're afraid of not being included. Last one to be kick, picked in kickball again. Poor me, you know. And, and we're just, we're not included and we're not treated the way we want to be treated. We're afraid of being rejected and all of that being hate. We're afraid of being hated by people. This, this motivates a lot of people. And I know that you're all in a very strong position and none of these things are touching your life, but this is for you to help the other people that are struggling, right? Okay. So all of these missing out, not being accepted, admired, included, being rejected, being hated, these fears, these all amount to one topic. It's a loss or absence of status. I think you can summarize all of it that I want to see myself a certain way and I want to make sure other people do too because if they see me that way, then I can look at myself that way and then I, I have value. And this is something that we do because we're not looking at God and getting our value from him. But I, it was out of order a little bit here. The last one is actually a big one. The loss of comfort. Fear of losing our comfort actually accounts for a lot of these. And I've, I've been thinking about this, the, the, the precipitate causes in my life that make me have to go take refuge in God and throw myself into the cleft of the rock against the attack of that fire-breathing dragon, these things will really tear you to pieces. And the only answer really is the shield of faith raised against these flaming arrows. So let's talk about loss of comfort. The fellow's in prison under this umbrella of comfort because... Once you have it, you don't want to lose it. And you might do things that violate your conscience to maintain it and its comfort. 
And under that umbrella of comfort, that idea of what gives me comfort is a fear of boredom. I'll do a lot of things in life. If I'm an average American, I'll do a lot of things just to make sure I'm not bored. Because the horror, the, uh, the, the thought of an unaccounted for moment allowing me to have a quiet bit of reflection, that's unthinkable. That's like, that's like going outside when it's, when it's a beautiful day or something. I can't possibly do that. <laughs> we can't stand the idea of a quiet moment because we're f- afraid of boredom and it's a loss of comfort. It's really what we call a first world problem. We're afraid of illness because it violates comfort. If I'm, if I'm uncomfortable, then I try to fix it where I'm comfortable. If I'm sitting in a certain position and it gets uncomfortable, I shift over and I move and now that feels better. And, and we don't even think about decisions we're making to comfort ourselves. We don't think about this. And the truth about the Christian life is it, it can't be your priority. Comfort cannot be the priority. And that's hard because I don't even think about making decisions to get comfortable. I just do it. We're afraid of inconvenient relationships. We're afraid of the discomfort that they'll give us. To talk to this person is discomforting to me. Why? Well, because I made mistakes in the past and I don't want to deal with the consequences. So it's uncomfortable. So now they're inconvenient. So I just can't, uh, can't associate with that. That, that person's gone, to, gone out of my life now. And that person's gone out of my life. Pretty soon you're in a box of like discomfort because you're alone. And you've, 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 got to, you've got to sort this out. But people do. They try to, um, to solve the problem of inconvenient relationships because uncomfortable. And, um, and we're not really not thinking about our responsibilities a lot of times. We're afraid of difficult situations. I have to tell you something that you don't want to hear. And so uh, I'm not. I'm not going to tell you it would be uncomfortable for me. I really, I really, I'm, let me get into the weakest possible position. I'll hold my own hands up by my, I really don't feel comfortable. Uh, talking to you about this. Well, um, guess what? Time to cowboy up a little bit and do what's necessary, not what feels good. And that's reality. That's how life really is. And back to the, back to the gym illustration. doesn't feel good when you get started, but the payoff is worth it. So uncomfortable situations, fear of difficult conversations, fear of rejection or loss of status. Again, this all fits under that umbrella of comfort. And so I, I'm just saying that these things are not... Um, these things are not um, an exhaustive list and they're interrelated things, but they're things we're afraid of and, and um, I think they all really amount to loss. I've lost something in every case. For thus the master Yahweh said, the Holy One of Israel, in a returning and calm, you'll be saved and quiet and confidence will be your strength, but you are not willing. And in returning and calm, you'll be saved. And quiet and confidence will be your strength, but you are not willing. Well, I mean, we would have to like, have some sort of proof that you could really bring it to pass, Lord. Okay, how about the Red Sea? It's your national founding event. It's the one thing that you can all point to that you knew I, I intervened on your behalf. Well, yeah, but Lord, that was, that was back then, and we don't really believe in you anymore is really what's going on. But see, the point is that they need to come back to him and they need to have confidence. They need to rest their faith in him and they would be saved and have their strength back. But they were not what? Willing. Some observations, seven little observations and we're just getting started. God's way is always a personal relationship with him through faith. That's always what he wants for his creatures. He made us in his image and that's what he wants out of you. God wants a personal relationship with you that is accessible to enter into it through faith and is lived through faith. We keep trusting him. It's always faith. Second, faith is always the resting of one's trust on uh, someone or something, on someone or something. That's what faith is. I'm gonna have to get after the person that wrote these. They, they, they had a typo. Third, we're always right to rest our faith in God. See, faith is resting your faith. Faith is, is reposing your trust in someone that's that you hopefully if you're wise is trustworthy, and you're always right. In fact, it's the declaration of righteousness to you when you trust in Christ as your Savior. It's always right to trust Him. And think about the reasons why you don't, the reasons why you won't. Fourth, we will always be wrong when we place our faith or repose our trust somewhere else. 
My favorite is Jeremiah 17, 5. Cursed is the man who puts his trust in man. No. Makes flesh his strength. There is no human who is going to perfectly take care of you and never let you down. But Jesus, he's God in the flesh of man. He's the God-man. We'll always be wrong when we place our faith somewhere else, even in, even in your spouse. I trusted you. Yeah, yeah. There, people will let you down. Fifth, this faith goes hand-in-hand hand with calm and quiet in the verse. In that verse... In calm and quiet, not in raging. It, back to last week in Psalm 23, the still waters. Clean, good green, good green grass. God has good for you, and he wants you to trust him, but it's the rest of faith. It's resting in him. And, and so think about the poise that's calling for. Inside faith, number six, manifests with outside poise. Inside faith, and on the outside of the chiastic thing in verse 12, is, uh, is coming back to him and faith. On the inside is calm and quiet. The inside person, okay, of, 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 of faith is manifesting outside in the calm, in the quiet, in, and, and think about what that means for your personality, for the way you deal with problems. Oh, but what about? Oh, but what about? Oh, but what about? Well, don't you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, but, 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 but well, calm down, spaz. You know, we, we all have to kind of, Rest our faith in God. And there needs to become, a, in verse 12, there's a poise that goes with that. Seventh, this lifestyle of calm faith rest is a choice. He says, I offer it to you, but you weren't willing. And what will we do with that? As individual believers in this time, we hear this word of this oracle of God's word to Judah 2,700 years ago. Are you going to hear it? Are you going to receive it? Are you going to trust him and say, no, I, I want that poise. I want that calm uh, faith rest in him. I have a suggested rationale for your faith rest. A suggested rationale for your faith rest, and it didn't do right. Just a second. Bear with me for one moment, please. That should be number 10. That's not going to work. Well, it's still going to work. It'll work. It'll work. It won't work perfectly. That's my life. It works. It doesn't work perfectly. And now it won't work at all. Wow. There. Okay, we got it. Maybe. I think I, I scared it. All right, when I talk about faith rest, let me just summarize it. We don't worry about the visual. Resting your faith in God. Remember, you've got the three components. You've got the threat, the presenting thing. You've got you, you're the subject exercising faith, and you have the object of faith is God. He's the faithful, trustworthy one, and we're not. God is faithful, we're not faithful. So so what we're saying is when, when you have a problem, and like the Assyrian crisis or some other form of divine discipline that God is correcting you and it's overwhelming and devastating, and that's what God's discipline can be. It can be overwhelming and devastating. You don't want to run from it. You don't want to pull a Jonah and try to, you know, solve your problem by compounding it. Don't pour, you know, water on a grease fire in their kitchen, right? Do that on the grill outside, I was taught, by a Navy cook, actually. But no, don't do it in the kitchen, right? And don't do it in the, in outside either unless you have the Navy cook with you to make it, make it work. But the point is that um, you've got the problem. You've got you. You've got God. And what you want to do in the crisis to bring your faith to bear on the situation is you have to react. Sometimes it's just muscle memory. Sometimes it's like they teach in handgun training. You can't think when you have to do something hard in a crisis. You need to just react. So what's the reaction? You grab a promise from God's word. 
You need to have a couple of them in the ready rack. You need to know Romans 8, 28, and you need to know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You know that God is working all things together for good for you, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And you need to know that, um, that, um, that when you bring your prayers to God with thanksgiving um, he will, and make your request known to God, uh, he'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You need to know uh, some promises, okay? So you, you have that quick. Romans 8.28 catches everything. He's working everything together for good. That's, that's the starting point is you grab a promise. And then the second thing you do after grabbing it in reaction is you claim it. And by claiming it, I mean you say, this is true, I believe this, and I'm trusting God about this. I'm thinking God's going to do what he said, so I believe that God will keep his promise. After all, it's called a promise. So that's react. I'm just going to grab a promise, I'm going to claim it, but I haven't even gotten started really on resting my faith. I'm just arresting the crisis by grabbing a, a, a part of scripture. The next thing you need to do though to really deal with your problem is you need to reflect on it. There's a reflect phase after the react phase and reflect is where you have to identify what the threat is. What is bothering you? Why is this a problem? What Something's wrong here and I'm not sure what it is, but I'm really upset. She's got me so mad. Well, she's bothering you. Yeah, but why? What is it? That's the reflection phase and you can do it once you've Grab some stability from a promise from God. You can think about this, and that's what you need to do. Identify the threat. What are you scared of? What are you worried about? What is it that has you upset? And then once you can say, well, it's, it's what she said, okay? Why is it a threat? Why does that cause you such concern? And that is the reflection phase. And the, the, answer, the question to answer when you're bothered by something, listen, when you're worried about something, when you're afraid about something, when something has you in a crisis, you need to ask the question, what am I going to stand to lose here? The fear is a fear of loss. What am I scared of losing? And you, you really will get hold of the situation and be able to repose your faith in God on that question of loss. It will help you. Man, this, real thing, this thing really is broken, Joel. Weird. <clears throat> Once you've reflected on it, you've, you've reacted with a promise, you've reflected on the promise, then you want to um, relate. The, thir the third R is relate. And I'll show you this next time. But you relate that thing that you're worried about, that you've answered the question, I, this is my problem. You relate it to what God says in his promises and what God says about himself in his essence. And what this does is it puts that very real problem that's this big, it puts it in perspective, and the perspective ends up being the eternal promises of God and his plan for you. So that the real problem doesn't change in size, but you do. And it, it takes the proper perspective, the proper size. This is how you will, your faith in the things of God can actually work through the problem that you're facing. So we're going to react with a promise. We're going to reflect on the problem at hand. What is the reason? What am I afraid of? What is the loss that I'm, I'm worried about it, dealing with in this instance? And then I'm going to relate that concern to God's promises and to God's essence. And then because now I have perspective, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy God, I'm going to rejoice. That's the fourth R. It's a command in Philippians 4.4, 4, and you're capable of doing it because of that perspective. It's not absurd to say in the midst of the crisis, I can go with 1 Peter chapter 1, which I'll read to you as we close. 1 Peter 1 has the word from God on rejoicing in suffering. We recently heard it. Uh, Jack teach through it um, over the last few years. But in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, it's a good thing I wrote that down on the slide so I'd remember what I, what I was doing. And this you greatly rejoice, this suffering, and I mean this salvation that we have, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. See, the, the last step in the faith rest technique, the way I understand it, is to rejoice in the promises of God and the stability that he offers. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means the suffering I'm enduring as I trust him has eternal glory to God and they can't have that glory without the suffering. It's, it's a necessary ingredient. 
And so I bring it to him. And though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The, The problem in Judah is they won't listen to God's words, so they have nothing to believe in. But you have. You've heard God's word. You know him. You've listened to his promises enough that in the crisis, you should be equipped to rest. You should be with Jesus taking a nap in the boat, right? And yeah, we may die, but I'm with him. It's going to be fine. Our Father, we thank you for the eternal life that's our possession now and our enjoyment now. We have it abundantly because Jesus has given it to us. Your Holy Spirit lives in us, and he is training us in righteousness. And I pray that we'll be able to react properly to the crisis, whatever it may be, and be calm as we know you have it under control. Father, we want to live in this life of faith rest and want to be equipped uh, to do that so that we can encourage others because that's what you have us here doing is making disciples. Strengthen us for it. In Jesus' name, amen.